And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Keith Law Show, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. This is episode 67 of the Keith Law Show. I will be joined later by Josh Levine of Slate to talk about his podcast, One Year, colon, 1977, which had an episode that was very related to baseball, actually. And he's also the author of a great book called The Queen, which profiles Linda Taylor, the woman who was tabbed as the welfare queen and used as a prop in Ronald Reagan's presidential campaign back leading up to 1980. Uh, it's also a great read about race and politics and the social safety network in our country. So I highly recommend it. I've had a lot of content up on the site in the last week and a half, culminating for the moment in my re-ranking of the top 50 prospects in minor league baseball, which included some recent draftees, including some guys who haven't signed yet, uh, which was just a an editorial decision I made because of how late we were in the process, how late the signing deadline especially is in the process. So, But that is up, and I've had a great response to that. I appreciate all of you who've read, shared it. Most of you who've commented, but I don't really appreciate all of you who've commented. Just most of you. Also, a regular reminder that I have a couple of books out, including The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves that came out in paperback earlier this year, as well as Smart Baseball, which has been out for a couple of years now. Now it is my pleasure to be joined by Josh Levine. He is the national editor for Slate. He is also the host of an excellent podcast called One Year, colon, 1977. He is also the author of a book that I really enjoyed that came out two years ago, I believe, The Queen. Was it two years ago? It was two years ago. It was two years ago. Excellent. The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Biography. Josh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Keith. Great to be here. So we'll start with the podcast. And the reason I'm having you on is that a particular episode of your podcast, One Year, which I encourage people to look for on iTunes or Spotify or wherever they get their podcasts, is you did an episode on Mary Shane. who was, I believe, the first uh, woman to, American woman, to be in a broadcast booth for a major sports team. And as I was just saying to you before we started recording, although I am the right age, I had never heard of Mary, totally unfamiliar with her story. So why don't we just start with that? Tell us who she was and maybe a little bit of why you think we've never heard of her, even though her role in sports broadcasting history is so important. Yeah, so she was um, from Milwaukee, and she had started her career as a teacher and then made a pretty hard pivot when her sister died um, after a car accident, made her reassess her life and what she wanted to do. And she had dreamed of being a sports writer as a kid and had always thought, eh, that's not realistic. 
based on what was expected of women at the time and based on what her own family's expectations were of her. But she just kind of decided to go for it. And she very steadily built up her career. She started doing some freelance writing. She got a job at a Milwaukee radio station and started covering the Brewers as a radio reporter in 1976. And Harry Carey noticed her um, in 76 when he was then the White Sox announcer was calling a game at County Stadium. And she got a couple of like tryouts. And it's not entirely clear what... um, if Harry Carey was like, there's a woman I'm in, uh, in, in the broadcast booth, like, uh, that's interesting, and just kind of invited her on in a lark, or if it was a more kind of formal audition process. But these are the Bill Veck White Sox, these are the Harry Carey White Sox, and so she eventually gets offered a gig calling games in the 1977 season. And she wasn't, like, exactly the first. There had been women who called a handful of games. There was one in the 30s. There was one in 1964, um, Betty Kaywood, who Charlie Finley put in the broadcast booth. and But what Mary Shane was, was the first woman who kind of had a serious, regular gig that like was not obviously a stunt. Like She was put in this booth to do this job that really only men had ever done before. And it was, you know, asking the question about why we don't know who she she is. It was a big story at the time. Like she was in, you know, Ms. Magazine profiled her. She was profiled on CBS and NBC um, television shows. She was covered in the national media, covered um, extensively in the Chicago media. But, um, you know, for reasons that we go into in the podcast and we can go into here if you'd like, it didn't work out for her. And... This kind of gets back to my book that you mentioned um, about this woman, Linda Taylor, who was the, you know, origin. The, the term welfare queen was originated to describe her. Sort of, she was forgotten too, and then subsequent people came along, and the actual history and story of it was overwritten. Um, because we always like to say, like, oh, this is the first, even if somebody isn't actually the first. It's more interesting to say, oh, this is the first person that's ever done it. This is the this is the biggest welfare cheat ever. This is the, you know, p- nobody's ever done anything like this. And the people who preceded um, that person who is now anointed as the first or the next get forgotten. And, you know, one thing that was just so striking to me is that um, her son gave me this unpublished memoir and the and when he you know scanned and, and sent it to me, the first couple pages are rejection letters from a publisher and an agent who said, "This has no commercial value. Nobody's going to be interested in your story." And so it's not like we've forgotten about her only in 2021. This was in like 1981, only a <laughs> few years after when she was already kind of relegated to a footnote when she had been kind of touted and trumpeted just a few years earlier. So one of the, there's, there are so many angles I want to go into. I guess I'll start first of all with why didn't it work out at that first opportunity? She had, she actually continued her career in sports journalism for a little bit. We'll get to that in one second. But, you know, you spoke to Mary Shane's no longer with us, but you spoke to a lot of people, including her son, who was very emotional hearing him, um, hearing his reminiscences of his mother too. 
But what from the folks you spoke to, what do you think were the factors why it didn't work out? And I mean, obviously, the institutional sexism was unbelievable at the time. And to be the first doing this in a significant role, she was the one who probably faced more of those barriers. Was it just that or am I oversimplifying her story? The reason that I wanted to tell the story was that the answer isn't black and white and isn't simple. And there are a bunch of different factors. One of them being she was a serious um, sports writer and journalist who had very little experience doing this exact job that she had been hired to do. Um, She was asked to do both play-by-play and color. She had to switch between radio and TV during the same game. Um, And this was somebody who didn't have much of a background in doing any of these things. So when she gets the job, what she does to prepare in the off-season beforehand is called Girls High School Basketball in Milwaukee um, to just get experience doing play-by-play of anything. And then in spring training, she's like out in the stands with a tape recorder and she'd go out there and call the game and then listen back to hear the um, mistakes she made. But this is somebody who, no matter how good she was, anyone in their first year of doing any job, but particularly, this is a very, very difficult job. Mm-hmm. It's a job that even experienced people, not all of them do it well. I mean, uh, so this is a situation where if it was going to work out, there would need to be a total institutional kind of um, dedication to we're going to stick with her, we're going to train her, we're going to kind of go with her with all of the ups and downs, and we're going to put a system in place to make sure that this works. Instead, what happens is they put her in the booth and nobody kind of tells her anything. They don't, um, there are certain people that she worked with who uh, she always believed that Harry Carey was kind of in her corner and was helpful. There was another broadcaster who was on that team, Lauren Brown, who she thought was actually sabotaging her, Mm -hmm. didn't want her to succeed. Um, And so, you know, a woman that we interviewed on the podcast who was similarly a pioneer, um, Helene Elliott, who was one of the first women sports writers, you know, in Chicago, she was at the Chicago Sun-Times, wrote a contemporaneous column where she said, Mary Shane's not that great at this point. And she was somebody who like understood institutional sexism, understood um, how difficult it was to be a pioneer. But just like listening to the broadcast, she thought Mary Shane was just okay. Like mm-hmm. the headline was, where's the oomph? So it, I don't know if, if, if we listen to Harry Carey in his first year ever, <laughs> his first few games ever, what that would have sounded like. But um, I think the point is that most people, we don't know what they sounded like because they're doing it in the minor leagues or they're doing it um, college or it's it's just like you know my the first stories that I that I ever wrote like I wasn't writing them for <laughs> I I didn't write a book as my first thing or I right. you know you start off and you figure things out and she wasn't afforded the opportunity to do that and it was just such a high profile thing and she felt so much pressure like if I don't do well then they're never going to hire another woman again like and and so you're learning on the job at an um and basically um a position where learning on the job is just like absolutely not possible right 
and you're not going to get any kind of allowance for that. So that was, you know, I don't want to put too much of my own interpretation onto this. It's obviously it's her story that you're that you're trying to tell here, but was that she needed to she needed to learn, she needed to improve. But it sounds like maybe she felt this way, or it maybe just be better to say this was a fact. She had to be perfect and then some. Right. There was just no room for her to be less than perfect. Any man, this Lauren Brown, who you have an audio clip of her, him just basically talking right over her on air. He could make mistakes. He didn't have to be perfect because he was a man. Men were supposed to be in the booth. If he made Whereas, a mistake, it was an announcer made a mistake. If she made a mistake, it's the woman made a mistake. Right. And you even include the, you know, something that I know women in sports media who still hear this, which is people writing in and saying basically they can't stand the sound of her voice, which is them actually, admit, you know, tell me you're sexist without actually telling me you're sexist. Yeah. And she took voice lessons to try to change her voice. Yeah, which is horrible, but also totally unsurprising, given what we know of the time. And frankly, that stuff still, I think, exists today. Maybe that's not quite as universal, but it's still out there. But I just cannot imagine, as I was listening to the podcast, I kept thinking, I cannot imagine trying to learn to do that job on the job and constantly knowing I can't make mistakes. I can make negative mistakes at this point, whereas... Everyone around me has some latitude to make errors on air, errors of fact, stumbling over a word, all the things that we worry about. I've done live television. I've done live radio. I know what those are, except I never had that extra layer of, oh, my God, I'm going to you know, lose my opportunity, get fired, ruin this for all women forever if I make a couple of extra mistakes. Yeah, exactly. And – there is a, an additional layer on top of that, which is, and, and she talked about this openly, the kind of need to be perfect and kind of go in between these very narrow lines meant that she also couldn't really show her full personality, that she was so focused on being quote unquote normal and acceptable that she couldn't be weird or funny or um, kind of necessarily develop her own style. I mean, there's a quote around opening day when she tells a writer from the Chicago Tribune, I've come up with my first line for opening day. I'm going to say, hi, I'm petite, blonde, Mary Shane, because everybody was so focused on how she looked. And then she very quickly says after that, I'm not being serious. I obviously won't say that. But it would have been <laughs> funny if she had said if she had said that. And it would have shown um, that she kind of you know, understood the kind of scrutiny that she was under. But uh, yeah, like, obviously, she's not going to say that and kind of draw that sort of attention to herself. She just wanted, and that's the thing, like, there's this question about, you know, Bill Vec being the ultimate decision maker here, the guy who had, you know, hired Eddie Goodell, but also the one who had, you know, signed Larry Doby. It's like, what is what is Vec's game here? If he had wanted somebody to be like a stunt and be a gimmick, he wouldn't have chosen a woman who was like a sports writer and a, you know, a radio reporter in, um, in Milwaukee who was just like so obsessed with baseball and devoted to the game and loved the game. Like you would have picked somebody who, um, you know, didn't necessarily have those, those attributes. And so she was put in this position where she was kind of perceived by a lot of people as a stunt or a gimmick. And she just absolutely didn't think of herself that way. And so she's just having to like, 
you know, having to navigate that was just so difficult. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So after it didn't work out uh, in the with the White Sox, where it just sounds like she was just her role was just kind of diminished, diminished. If I got got the story correctly, they took her off TV, they took her off radio, and they never really gave her full time opportunity in that one year. And eventually, she was just cut out of the broadcast. But she kept going too. She continued on and ended up resurfacing in another major market later, which I also think is really interesting. And all it makes it even more shocking to me that I hadn't heard her story before. She popped up twice in major markets covering very you know, extremely major American sports franchises. So yeah. tell us a little bit about how she, sort of how she bounced back. Maybe that's a little overstating, but how she continued her career. Yeah. So she goes back to Milwaukee after um, the White Sox don't renew her contract and she becomes a teacher again which she had been prior to deciding that she wanted to go into sports and she does that for a little while and i think it'll you know she kind of settles in and she has she's a single mother we should note with a a young child um and she just decides like i'm not gonna let this be the end of of my career in sports it's what i love to do i'm not gonna let these people take it away from me. And she starts um, out as a sports writer at the Moline Dispatch in the Quad Cities, um, you know, covering high school, Iowa, Illinois sports. Um, and she's there for a couple years and then gets hired um, at the Worcester Telegram in Massachusetts to be the beat writer for the Boston Celtics, which in that moment is maybe the... Um, highest profile and most competitive beat or one of them in all of American sports. So, you know, and we talked to Jackie McMullen for the podcast and Mary Shane got there before Jackie did. And Jackie's like, there was always, you know, two women there. It was me and it was Mary <laughs> and Mary was there first. And she had to deal with a lot of the same stuff that she had to deal with in Milwaukee. I didn't mention this before, but the challenge that she had in being a radio reporter for the Brewers is they wouldn't let her in the locker room. And so she had to work twice as hard as the men on that beat to try to do the same job. And in Boston, you know, they again won't let her in the locker room, but because of her persistence. And I think to be fair, it's it's slightly later time, but also I think more enlightened people and maybe a more enlightened league at that mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. Um, she does eventually. It's, it's still true. <laughs> <laughs> she does eventually get 
the access that she had always deserved. Um, and she builds trust. She has a really good relationship with Larry Bird, gets like exclusive, um, a big exclusive interview with Larry Bird and is just generally like really respected in that market and on that beat. And so that's the kind of story that she writes for herself. This isn't a story about somebody who gets this chance and, and you know, oh, it doesn't work out and that's the, the end of it. It's a story of like perseverance and not allowing people to drive you away from the thing that you love to do. I was glad you, you said you spoke to Jackie McMullen. You also spoke to Susan Waldman. And as somebody who also grew up a Yankee fan, my most of my family, um, just about all my family, lived in or outside New York for a long time. I remember roughly when Susan started doing some radio work for the Yankees. And obviously now she's an you know, icon. She's been there forever. But I also remember a lot of the criticism of her for being a woman, for being quote unquote loud or for just for how she sounded. And I mean, she would be the first person I would think of to ask for a story like this, because I think she's still the most prominent uh, woman in baseball broadcasting. At least I can't speak to other sports, but I was Particularly curious, too. She appears a couple times in the podcast episode. But was there anything else from her in terms of just recollections of Mary Shane or, or thinking about how Mary opened, maybe opened some doors for Susan? Because again, I think Susan is the, the, she is our pioneer or she's the one, she's the name who comes up, maybe I should say more as the pioneer because she got the extended opportunity that Mary obviously never got. Yeah. So. There are a bunch of really key differences between Susan's story and Mary's story. Susan Waldman was a, a Broadway um, star. I mean, she had perf- she's a performer um, before she got into sports um, and radio. And so even when she was kind of like green in the way that Mary Shane was green, it was a little bit different in that mm-hmm. she um, knew how to you know, kind of navigate and handle that environment in a way that somebody who didn't have that experience of being on stage and being a performer, um, you know, that uh, that Mary Shane didn't didn't have. Um, also, Susan Wallman started out on WFAN. She mm-hmm. was on radio in that market for a while before she started calling Yankees games. So people in New York knew her. They knew her voice. They might not have liked her voice, but she was, <laughs> a lot of them didn't. I mean, but she was a f- sort of familiar person and persona, which I think, you know, according to her, went a long way. But all that being said, she had to put up with a huge amount of, of, of crap yeah. um, and continues to. And with Jackie, with her, I also talked to Leslie Visser, um, mm. Uh, who on our sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, I played some clips from my interview with Leslie. So interesting to hear all of them talk. And it's like women of that generation who had like long and successful careers, I think, share this trait of not complaining, not wanting to be perceived as complaining, being incredibly tough and just being like, that's how it was. We had to deal with it. Not that it was okay. Um, not that we ever thought it was okay. But just like you had to have not like thick skin undersells it to like uh, mm-hmm. by by orders 
of magnitude, but just, you know, having, there might be like a sort of like survivorship bias thing going on here because like the, the women that we know about who had these long careers, I think, and it would have been like a fine decision to be like, you know what? I know that I'm not wanted here. I know I'm not being treated well. I'm going to like go off and do something else. But these were people that just like chose not to do that and chose to stick with it. Um, but the other thing that Susan said was, and Mary Shane was just a little bit before her time. Um, and she said, you know, the thing I heard about Mary Shane was that she was okay. And that's just not good enough for a woman. It wasn't good enough then. And it's not good enough now. And um, I, I think there's just this recognition, like you can't make a mistake, that you're judged by a different standard. And it's not fair, but that's just what the reality is. And there is this quote that we had at the end from Susan um, that I thought was just like pretty stark where she says, you know, I feel like I'm not accepted. I'm tolerated. And if we all would just disappear, then, you know, no one would bat an eye. I'm sure that's Mm -hmm. not true that no one would bat an eye, but I'm sure a lot of people (laughs) in baseball wouldn't, wouldn't bat an eye. No, that's, uh, unfortunately, I think that would probably still be accurate. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, I mentioned earlier your book, The Queen, and would love to just talk a little bit about that. And I, I, again, it's another one. It's a story I didn't really know. I should, would say I should have known more about the story than I actually did. Now I've read your book, and obviously now I know a lot more about the story. But it's about Linda Taylor, the woman who was essentially the one who was tabbed the welfare queen. She is the the person behind the epithet. And I found... There's so much about that story that's fascinating. I think it's an excellent book that is at, at its heart very much about race. And also to me, really, God, you wrote that. I'm going to say you probably wrote that between three and four years ago. And even now, if you look at the sort of Republican Party's playbook right now, you can see its germination in especially Ronald Reagan's use of Linda Taylor, a black woman, as somebody who is cheating the system to sort of stir up white resentment and generate, you know, to get people to the polls. And so, uh, you know, first I'll just ask, how'd you stumble on this story as a topic? Obviously it's outside of your typical milieu, what you write about or what you cover on your podcasts. Uh, and yet you found this utterly fascinating story and I think told it extremely well. Thank you very much. So it started out as a piece for Slate and 
one of my um, colleagues then, who became my colleague again later, Tom Skoka, <laughs> was um, working on an item about that um, speech that Mitt Romney gave that was secretly recorded mm-hmm. um, at um, a fundraiser with donors where he's talking about how, you know, a certain percentage of people in this country are never going to vote for us, meaning Republicans, because they're just basically, you know, leeches in so many words that they don't pay taxes, that they don't contribute anything. And so, yeah, Tom was writing this post about it, and he asked me um, about, you know, if I had heard of Linda Taylor. um, And I said I had not, and I just did a little Googling, and I found... Um, I think it was like a digitized copy, you know, how Google Books digitizes a bunch of old like magazines. I think it was Mm -hmm. a Jet Magazine story about her. And the first item that I ever read about her was about how she was chameleonic, how she would change her race. And um, this was like in the reporting about how she had stolen $150,000 a year in public aid money, which turned out to be highly exaggerated, but this is how it was written about at the time in the mid-1970s. And so I got really hooked in in that first story um, that I read. And what I found was she was written about a lot, and this again is a Chicago story, um, in the in the mid-70s, first as a local story, and then it got national when Reagan started talking about her. There was a trial she was convicted of welfare fraud in 1977. So there's this very intense period of interest in her for a couple of years. And then nobody wrote anything about her ever again, um, about her specifically. She was kind of, she'd get like mentioned in passing um, about like, oh yeah, I remember that, uh, you know, the welfare queen. Um, but nobody knew or had written about what happened to her after she went to prison. There wasn't really any reporting about who she was or what her story was before she was identified as being this welfare cheat in 1974. And so I just wanted to figure out <laughs> what the deal was, basically. And it, it's it's complicated, right? Her story is complicated. Mm-hmm. That was the other, there were many, many takeaways, the, the sort of side story on George Bliss, who kind of brought her to prominence, and then his tragedy was one of the more interesting side plots or side stories, I should say. But in Taylor's case, it's like, no, actually, this was a real person. This is a complicated person. Yes, she probably was a crook. However, it's not that simple, right? Reducing a human to a single word like that or a single image is probably not doing anybody justice. But in her case, yeah, it was pretty complicated, a pretty lousy childhood and lots of problems that were not of her own making and that maybe have informed the choices that she made later on. And to take something like that, to start with welfare queen or welfare, you know, which is obviously it's coded language in there, or just even to say welfare cheat, most people are a lot more complex than that. And to choose somebody like her, I think I thought it was a bold choice because we are programmed to think less of her, right? She cheated the system. Even a good liberal would say, no, 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 that's not the purpose of public aid. Public aid should be going to people who need it. She's abusing the system. You know, we love to point fingers and look down on people like Linda Taylor, but it turns out, yeah, actually she could be, okay, she could be a cheat, but also at the same time, 
be an object of or of some empathy for understanding. No, she's, she is more complicated. She probably did some really horrible things, but also had some really horrible things done to her. And I felt like you brought all of that together to create a pretty cohesive um, and three-dimensional picture of this woman. Yeah. Um, I mean, the term welfare queen and the fact that it was applied to this kind of outlier person in this outlier story did a lot of damage to people that weren't her obviously Mm -hmm. the way that it um stigmatized public benefits the way it was used to label anyone who was in need as a cheat like the fact that you were getting welfare made you suspect in the eyes of many because of the use of of this term um and so just there there are all these different levels of victimization about how she herself was victimized in her youth how she was victimized by this um, label how other people were victimized by it but also you know in writing this I had to do justice to the people that were Taylor's victims I mean she ab- abused people she probably was responsible for killing people and so you know in talking to the family members of those victims they said you know the police and the media never cared about us because in many cases we're black and so there's a line to walk there where I can't, in good conscience, make um, some claim that like Linda Taylor was a great person who was just right. ro- wronged by the media and, and Ronald Reagan. Um, you know, she wasn't a, a, a person who was out in the world doing great works of, of charity. Right. And so the fact that you have to kind of tie yourself in knots around this stuff is what made it so interesting to me and why it seemed worthy of a book to try to um, figure out how we should think about um, stories like this where there aren't any kind of quote-unquote good guys. That book that we're talking about is The Queen. It is authored by my guest today, Josh Levine. You can follow him on Twitter at Josh underscore L-E-V-I-N. And we also spoke about an episode of his podcast, One Year, colon, 1977, which I highly recommend. You can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts. Josh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Keith. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. I've been exhorting everyone for months to go get vaccinated. I hope if you're listening to this podcast, you are already vaccinated. There's probably a little selection bias going on there. But if not, please go out and do so. That Delta variant is even more contagious than they thought it would be. And even if you are vaccinated, please consider wearing a mask indoors. I don't like it either, but it's what we've got to do to keep ourselves safe and to keep those around us safe. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Go get that vaccine.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.